can't judge a person and it turns out you didn't have the whole story? Ever learn there was a lot more to that story than you first realized? I'm Kimberly. And I'm Rebecca. Join us as we separate the little lies from the big reputations. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. In case you notice anything strange with our sound this week, um, it's hot as balls here in New York, and we had the uh, air conditioner on. We could not record a two-hour episode without the air conditioner. No. So sorry about the sound, but also, sorry, not sorry. It's so hot. It's like 90-something degrees. So we mentioned in our last episode that we were going to be covering Roe v. Wade this time. And uh, since it's a bit more of a serious topic and Mm -hmm. we have a lot of notes on it, we're just going to skip the chit chat portion and jump right into the topic. Yeah. So today we're going to be discussing and unfortunately a very timely topic, Roe versus Wade. We will be digging into the history of the case, including how it came to be and who supported it, how it was changed over the years and the eventual overturning of the law. Then we'll take a look at how the media has approached the subject over the years, from the initial reporting in 1973 on the evening news to film and television portrayals. We'll also consider how both with Roe and Dobbs, the results were leaked prior to the official decision, the opposition and support for the decisions, and organizations that have spoken out against it. Next, we'll discuss the truth of abortion as healthcare, as well as the legal ramifications of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Finally, we'll cover who will feel the impact of this decision. Spoiler alert, it's everyone. And what the consequences could be for individuals, society, and even the, ah, gasp, economy. (laughs) So just some trigger warnings. Within the context of abortion, there's going to be mentions of rape, abuse, and self-induced abortions. One of the things that we have liked to do with our big topic episodes is sort of discuss the ways in which the topic maybe has impacted us. So are there any ways in which... um, you know, Roe v. Wade and the topic of today has impacted you in your life? Maybe, maybe not. Um, I talked to my mom, um, who was born in like 1952, just to see what her experience uh, with everything was during that time. And she had known a few people who had some not so legal abortions, and it scared her so bad that she got on birth control. So she didn't have me until she was like 35. So I mean, I could have other siblings or I could maybe not even be around because maybe she was like, I've had enough kids. I don't need any more. So I might not have, you know, been here. So that's one way that it's affected us. It's not a huge way, but like maybe it is. No, I mean, Roe v. Wade doesn't have to be like I had an abortion Mm -hmm. impact, right? There are other ways in which it can affect you. And I would say my connection with it is somewhat similar. Like it's not my story to tell, but Mm -hmm. let's just say like I'm glad abortions were legal in the 1970s and 80s, you know? So before we can discuss uh, why Roe versus Wade was put into place, we're going to need to talk about why we needed it in the first place. Yeah. So it all starts with abortion. So this episode, we're going to focus on elective abortions or induced abortions rather than spontaneous abortions, which are also known as miscarriages. Yes. So what is an elective abortion? It's a procedure to end a pregnancy, basically. This can be done with medicine in a pill form or surgery to remove the embryo or fetus and the placenta from the uterus. When done surgically, it's known as a DNC. That's also known as dilation and curatage. This procedure is used to clear up the uterine lining after miscarriage as well, hence the overlap. Yeah. In the early 1900s, like, you know, 1910-ish and there. When you were born? 
According to my sister Molly, you know, that's about 15 years after I was born. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, in the early 1900s, like around 1910, abortion was illegal at every stage of pregnancy in every state in the U.S. But this doesn't mean that abortions didn't happen. And honestly, abortions are as old as time. Mm-hmm. Like as, I think I mentioned this book maybe once on the podcast before, but I read this book, The, the Crime of Father Amaro, and... Um, it's, it, it, I think it's like a 17th or 18th, 18th century novel. And mm-hmm. it definitely involves like a priest getting someone pregnant and like the abortion that she has afterward. And oh this God. is like a very old, like they don't call it an abortion. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, she went to this person's place and like they're known for making babies disappear or, you know, like I forget how they phrased it, but um, it was yes. made in the early 2000s. It was made into a film. So the, the novel takes place in Portugal mm-hmm. in, in the early 2000s. It was made into a film called the crime of Padre Amaro and it stars Gael Garcia Bernal. And it was in Mexico, but it was the same premise of a, a priest and a, a young woman uh, beginning a relationship Hmm. It was uh, framed as consensual-ish. How old was she? She was uh, she was of age. Oh, so but the he weird was a priest. But he's a priest. I listen. I feel like priests should be able to get married, right? I'm but the problem stupid. was because he wasn't able to do that, and it couldn't come out that it was mm-hmm. his. Then she had to have the abortion, and of course, it was a botched abortion, and things didn't end well. Things rarely do when you include religion. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's another episode. <laughs> that is a whole other episode. Anyway, you know, in the early 20th century here in the U.S., newspaper ads sold, like, elixirs and things like that that would help return you back to your cycle after a missed period. Like, that's clever. <laughs> right? That way of phrasing things. You know, because they couldn't just come out and say it, but there was a market to, like, help someone abort a fetus Mm -hmm. in later years when airline travel became more common. And you know, also if you were wealthy, Mm -hmm. you could go to Mexico or Puerto Rico and receive safe abortion from a doctor in one of those countries. Also women, presumably wealthy women as well, right. Uh, in the States could visit a family doctor who might be able to handle it discreetly. Yeah. If those options were not available to you, the only option was what they called a a back alley doctor. Uh, Here, the outcomes were not as good as procedures were often done by people lacking the necessary skills or an environment lacking the correct medical standards. So like around the 60s in Chicago, the mob got involved into the abortion business. The mob? The mob was in a lot of things. What did we just just talk about? about? say um, during like gay clubs. Yeah. Stonewall. Yeah. The mob was like... Let's put our fingers in everywhere. I guess wherever you can get money, you can get money, right? There you go. Now the, now the mob is just the government. <laughs> oh. Successful burn. Successful burn. <laughs> so the mob moved in the shadows. They worked out of motels. Um, like I said, they were known for a lot of things, but medical care wasn't really one of them. So the outcomes on these things weren't so great. There were also many cases of women who couldn't reach or afford a doctor and were so desperate that they took anything around the house to cause an abortion. Hundreds of women ended up in the hospital due to things like chemical burns and poisoning that they endured while trying to abort a fetus. Most of the time, women were not treated with kindness during the search for abortion care. They were made to feel like criminals and they had to behave as such. 
women were dying in overwhelming numbers. In a study done in 1965, it was found out that 350,000 women a year suffered complications from illegal abortions. 5,000 of those women died from those complications. This was a health crisis, and people started to take notice and demand action. One of these groups was the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion. And um, they were interviewed in the Reversing Roe documentary. You should definitely check that out if you haven't seen it yet. Priests and other religious figures were most commonly the first people told about an unwanted pregnancy. Now, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Oh, absolutely. Uh, women came to them for consultation. A group of American clergy members actually got together and found licensed doctors for safe abortions. So women of all ages were referred to them and they consulted with them before and after if it was needed. So it feels weird to be like, that's so weird that the church helped because that should be the norm, right? Like this should be the baseline of how religion acts in scenarios like this now, because they saw that these women were suffering, they needed help. And what would be the best for the life of the mother in these scenarios? Like they knew these women, these were their, what do you call them? Parishioners? Like, of course they wanted to help them. I don't know when... When it got so so twisted that now that there's religious figures well, coming in on, under opposition of this. Like I think there now. were still, yeah. but like this happened to be a group that was maybe a bit more understanding mm-hmm. and like their interpretation of like the Bible and Catholicism. Yeah. I wonder I if maybe you could be, you could have more interpretation of things back then. Like I wonder if many priests now or clergy members like feel the same, but like, can't say anything because maybe they'll lose their other people in their church. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I feel like a lot of things changed um, after Roe, mm-hmm. like abortions and that sort of stuff uh, became so much more politicized and a lot of political affiliations and religious affiliations yeah. have parallels. But I think it's just something that's slowly built over time. Mm-hmm. So another group that was looking to provide some assistance was the Jane Collective. They were a group working to keep women safe. In the 1960s, they operated in Chicago to provide safe access to abortions while avoiding the police and the mob that we talked about before. The Janes posted vague newspaper ads that said, pregnant, call Jane. Women access them by word of mouth. If a woman needed a procedure, one of the Janes would pick her up and take her to the house of a supporter who offered up their home as a clinic for the day. The Janes estimate that they performed about 11,000 abortions before the Roe decision made them unnecessary. Who knows? Are we going to see them come back? Absolutely. I hope. I mean, and and maybe I'd be a part of that. So, yeah. Well, I don't have those skills. Well, I mean, I've got a house apartment that you could stay in when you do your surgery. It's true. You have that extra room. Yeah. And And a a dog. dog (laughs) And support animal. Oh, okay. I was like, you're going through a difficult time and this little dog will come and like lick your tears away. He's so snuggly. He's so snuggly. Kim sent me a photo the other day of him just like snoozing on the bed and I just wanted to like scoop him up. It was so cute. He was just laying in the sun and like belly out to the AC. He was very excited about life. So the Clergy Consultation Service and the Jane Collective were joined by doctors and other civil rights groups to protest and demand change, from disruptive civil disobedience to demonstrating and lobbying. These groups started to fight for reproductive rights. Things were starting to change due to the work of early feminists like Gloria Steinem, Florence Flo Kennedy, Dorothy Pittman Hughes, and many others who we will 100% be covering because they're all badasses. 
They're pushing health. By the late 1960s, a nationwide effort was underway to reform abortion laws in nearly every state. There were some early adopters. Between 1967 and 1973, for example, four states, Alaska, Hawaii, New York, and Washington. Hey, New York. All repealed their abortion bans entirely. After a lawsuit in which nine well-known doctors were sued in California for performing abortions on women who had been exposed to rubella, a disease known to cause birth defects, doctors put their foot down. Doctors across the country came to their defense, resulting in one of the first abortion reforms measures in the United States. The Therapeutic Abortion Act was passed in 1967 and signed by then-Republican Governor Ronald Reagan. Doctor and nurses were on the front lines, and they saw women losing the battle every day. They started to demand change as well. I think it's also fascinating that, like, like Reagan, Reagan Reagan's, um, you know, I think similar to Trump in this sense where he's just, like, going where the masses want him. Mm-hmm. That at this point when he's the governor, I mean, the Republican Party is intended to be the party that's, like, less government. In, yeah. And yet... Th- this is true, except when they don't want it to be. And one of those things is with women's bodies. Right? I'm trying to think in what circumstances it's true in now. I guess just like social programs, I think, is where they're like, the government shouldn't be involved in like daycare anything, for kids. Anything that happen- happens to help, you know, mm-hmm. um, anybody who doesn't look like them. <laughs> we'll just we'll just say yeah. it like that, you know. But this is when we get Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. So Roe v. Wade, like the woman who was seeking the abortion in this case, she wanted to remain anonymous for her own safety, I imagine. Yeah. So they used the name Jane Roe, kind of like John Doe, but the feminized version, I guess, mm-hmm. which is interesting because I've always heard Jane Doe, but I guess they decide to switch up. Imagine if it was like Doe v. Wade, like that would be really weird. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> because... I've heard Jane Doe, like mm. John Doe and Jane Doe when you talk about crimes. Yeah. But like they decided to use Roe instead of Doe. Doe but like, um, yeah, that, I mean, I guess if we'd had 50 years of that, it yeah, would Yeah, I'm like, it, it doesn't sound that crazy. But it does sound like a little bit strange. And I think because Doe is so obviously anonymous. Yes. That Maybe Roe that's why they went real. with Roe. Maybe. No. The Wade part of the name, that was actually based on the state attorney of Dallas, Henry Wade. Mm -hmm. So basically, Jane Roe no longer wanted to be pregnant and didn't think that the state of Texas should have any say in this matter. You know, it shouldn't be up to the state, the government, to decide what she does with her body. Her lawyer, Sarah Weddington, argued that the abortion was within the scope of the personal liberties guaranteed by the Due Process Clause found in both the Fifth and 14th amendments to the United States Constitution. So just like a quick side note on her lawyer, Sarah was 26 years old and was presenting a case for the Supreme Court. Like, that's huge. Yeah, I mean, we actually have a Supreme Court justice who never, never presented a case Mm. to the Supreme Court. So, you know, we've come a long way, maybe in the wrong direction. I mean, Sarah would be more qualified. She's, I think she's very old now, but people were proud of her. Her local newspaper thought this was really big too. So when they announced it, they announced it with the headline, Blonde Attorney Defends Abortion Before Court. That's her qualifier, Blonde Attorney? Blonde Attorney. And then I think I'm going to try and find it. um, I can get like a a screenshot of it and put it on the the gram when we put this out. But like in the article, it's just like attractive blonde. Like they just like play up that she's so hot. But like that was the headline for this huge case. 
blonde attorney defends abortion before court. Anyway, Mm -hmm. headline aside, uh, Weddington did an amazing job and the court ruled in her favor. The Supreme Court affirmed the judgment holding that abortion was within the scope of the personal liberty and a constitutional right to privacy. And that the choice to carry a pregnancy to term was the choice of the woman. A ruling of 7 to 2 made the issue a private matter between a woman and a doctor on January 22, 1973. No laws could be passed to make abortion illegal in the states, but that doesn't mean people didn't try. Yeah. Immediately after Roe was decided, opponents of abortion urged their state and federal lawmakers to take action to undo it. Since 1973, the Supreme Court has been repeatedly asked to make the call over different cases looking into restricting and banning abortion access. In the case of Harris v. McRae, the court upheld the 1980s decision which restricted state funding to only those abortions needed to protect the life of the mother, effectively defunding it. You know, either you had the money or you had a baby. So obviously that means that people who were poor Mm -hmm. were forced to give birth, raise a child that they didn't have money to Mm -hmm. raise, and remain poor or become poor. Yeah. Yeah, like, so, like, let me play devil's advocate, like, just a little bit. I kind of understand. No. If I was a pro-life person. I don't understand that at all. (laughs) Yes. But... Say, like, I I don't want my tax dollars going to things that I think are, quote unquote, wrong. But the issue here, actually, is that it doesn't stop at just defunding. No, absolutely not. I mean, we've seen that with, like, Planned Parenthood in recent years, too, Mm -hmm. right? Like, oh, we'll defund Planned Parenthood because of um, they give abortions. It's like, well, they've never been able to use their money from the federal government for abortions Mm -hmm. in the first place. Yeah. it didn't stop people from continuing to try to drive home that point and have it impact them even more. I also think that sometimes things are just for the greater good. Like I used to have such a problem with my money, uh, like taxes going to like public schools. I was like, I don't have children. Like, why can't I have this money? And then I thought about it and I was like, well, like all these little kids are like in school learning how not to be dirtbags who will rob me in the street. You know, we like, are a society. The greater we're, a com- good. we're a community yeah. and we need to help each other out. No, I mean, absolutely. I, I think I told this story on the podcast before about my essay that I wrote in high school about social security. Maybe no, I didn't. I don't but think so. If I did skip ahead a minute, if you already know this, but basically when I was a junior in high school, we had to do one of those like, like we'd read Thoreau and the, the civil disobedience thing where he's like, I don't think my tax money should be used for X, so I'm not going to pay taxes and I'm going to go live off the grid, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But really, his mom, like, brought him food every day and his sister did his laundry, but, you know, whatever. Um, Anyway. I was so disappointed. (laughs) I was like, good for this guy. Oh, no. He just, like... No. He got, like, invisible labor from, like, the women in his life to, like... Yeah. Exactly. Um, My face is so scrunched up right now. So my junior English teacher made us all write our own sort of like civil disobedience type things. Like what would we perform civil disobedience for? Mm -hmm. And I was like, social security tax is like not good because it's my money and it should be mine. And I'm like, or, you know, it can go to help those who are retiring. And then like later on, there will be money for me. Now we've seen that that doesn't work out so well because we do have a corrupt government, but like, I still That's think those fun. people should be getting funding. Like if they like, I mean, those if people you are can't people work, now, right? Like that's my mom. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it was just one of those things where it's like, I've grown up and learned a lot more about mm-hmm. like the overall impact of the individual on society and how yeah. we need each other mm-hmm. and we should support one another and defend one another. So like, that's one of those things that I was like, if I lived in the age of social media, and I mean, I guess I'm putting it out into the world now, but like I was a 16 year old idiot and I was like, hey, yeah, this. But like if I tried to run for president now, they'd be like, Rrr. well, when she was 16, she said this. It's like, you know what? I've grown up you and I've learned and, and I've changed that. things. I've, But it was well, I have to delete this from the podcast because like oh, it, yes. there wasn't social media in that. Boom. Mm, when I, well, I was a dumb 20 year old when I like thought these things and I would post it all. I've gone back and like since deleted lots of things. There you go. Embarrassing. Anyway, you know, going back to what you said about like people not wanting their tax dollars being used for things they thought is wrong. It's like, Mm -hmm. but these people who don't want their tax dollars being used for individuals in this sense are generally the same people who don't want their tax dollars being used for programs such as welfare and Medicaid either. True. So like they don't want to pay for your abortion, but they Mm -hmm. don't want to pay for your being forced to bring a life into this world and you have to pick one they just want you to suffer on all fronts Mm -hmm. and and that's their agenda right like they they, it's caring about the self and only the self Mm -hmm. and it's some ayn rand level bullshit anyway moving on the effect of this ruling meant that lower income women were on their own when it came to covering abortion costs and of course if you didn't have the money to cover the procedure it's less likely that you'd have money to raise a child right just like we're talking about Mm -hmm. here so in the case of hl versus matheson in 1981 the court upheld a statute requiring parental notification before an abortion could be done on a minor 21 states still require this the other alternative would be to get a judge to consent on your behalf which sounds like that would take 20 minutes right no quick quick to get in front of a judge yeah 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 absolutely (laughs) totally so while minors do reach out to their caregivers before seeking abortions, some teens might not live in a safe enough family environment where that's a, a possibility. Making minors involve their parents in these circumstances can put them at risk for violence and homelessness. Now, not every nuisance ruling was upheld. In the case of Medical v. Russo, the court agreed that requiring abortion providers to have hospital admitting privilege for up to 30 miles was a clear, quote, undue burden, unquote, on their patients' rights. The idea was to limit who could do abortions as doctors were able to travel to provide care. By lowering the number of doctors who can provide an abortion, you only lower the number of safe abortions. Other aims to limit the hours, size, and location of clinics were all to reduce numbers, and the court shut them down. This is not to say abortion clinics are everywhere. They're definitely not. Mm -mm. Some states only had one for the whole state. And of course, those things may have changed since. Right. It, it's a very local issue, a state to state or even mm-hmm. county to county issue. Yeah. Kentucky is one of those states. They managed to get a nuisance law passed into the, through the court. It's called Kentucky Abortion Ultrasound Law. According to the New York Times, in the case of EMW Women's Surgical Center versus Mayer, brought by the only licensed abortion clinic in the state and the three doctors that worked there, they challenged a 2017 law that required doctors to give a, de- give a detailed description of the fetal ultrasound images, including the presence of external members and and internal organs. Doctors were also required to make the fetal heartbeat audible. That's fucked up. 
that's fucked up. And the the members is like, oh, you're having a little girl. Can't you hear her heartbeat? Don't you want to keep her? But you don't her? know the sex of the baby at that point. You but, don't, but you can. And a fetal heartbeat is not the same thing as a heartbeat. Mm-mm. Right? It's It's different. Yeah. Anyway, ultrasounds are not medically necessary for abortions. Not at all. It was just a stalling tactic, a way to get a woman to change her mind or at least provide enough doubt to run out the clock on the time frame for safe and legal abortions. Like, oh, you're not allowed to do it after this amount of time. But if you hear the heartbeat, then maybe you'll second guess your decision. We don't really bring it up, but now that I'm thinking about it, there's all these um, fake abortion clinics that will do that. Like, you'll go in and you think you're going to get an abortion. Meanwhile, you're meeting with someone who will tell you, oh, the heartbeat. Oh, we'll be able to give you diapers and clothes. And, like, don't you want to think about your baby's future? Come back tomorrow and we'll, like, discuss it again. Or they give you an appointment for weeks further. Mm-hmm. And by the time the jig is up and you, the 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 person who needs the abortion starts to realize, this is not an abortion clinic. I will not get the care I need here. Now you might be like 16, 17 weeks pregnant and in your state, you can't get that abortion. Yeah. So there's a lot if, of places like if that. If your state still does allow abortions, like please try to rely on trusted services like mm-hmm. Planned Parenthood if you need to seek abortion services. Mm-hmm. And honestly, Planned Parenthood does so much great things for like healthcare in general. In 2003, the Supreme Court upheld the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act. This ban made it a federal crime to take certain steps when performing a second trimester abortion. The court upholding the ban effectively overturned a key argument that Roe had already confirmed, that a woman's health must be the number one chief concern in any laws that restricted abortion's access. Sure, a law could delay and trick, but it can never put a woman's health at risk. This ruling went against practices that were deemed necessary and safe by major medical organizations, including the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Another hit to Roe v. Wade took place in 1992 with the case of Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which established that abortion restrictions are constitutional as long as they do not present a, quote, undue burden. Now, undue burden is a vague term, as some states took this to mean state-mandated waiting periods of 24 to 72 hours, vaginal ultrasounds, and those parental notification requirements that we spoke of. This made it so that women had to jump through all sorts of hoops in a certain amount of time to actually obtain abortion services. So speaking of hoops and dirty, dirty games, the conservatives have... Conservatives have been playing the long game and taking over the court for years. So... Taking over the Supreme Court is a very easy way to get unpopular policies that have no chance of being won at a ballot box passed. According to a Gallup poll, 55% of Americans consider themselves pro-choice. If America was to vote, all states would have the right to safe and legal abortions. So if it can't be done in a democratic way, let's do it the sneaky way. Yeah, totally. Five of the six current conservative justices were appointed by presidents who lost the national popular vote. So not only did the American people not want that president's justice pick, they didn't even want the president. That's funny. Is it funny as funny as a word? Not not funny, haha, but funny how sad. <laughs> gotcha. So two of those justices have been credibly accused of sexual assault or harassment, that being Brett Kavanaugh and Clarence Thomas. So if you didn't listen, go back and listen to our episode on the amazing Anita Hill to learn more about what a terrible person Clarence Thomas actually is. 
According to an article written by David Daly for The Guardian, all six justices were confirmed by a U.S. Senate that overweighs the interests of smaller, whiter states and is therefore regularly controlled by a Republican Party, even though studies show that Senate Republicans have not won more votes or represented more Americans than Democrats since the 1990s. The article goes on to state that the Senate Republicans, of course, have used that ill-held majority to stack and rewire the court holding a 2016 seat open for nearly a year under a Democratic president by manufacturing a rule about confirmations during an election year, but fast-tracking the appointment of a conservative in fall 2020, even after early voting had already begun. Suspicious. I mean, we were all in a, a, like, an uproar about it, but they didn't even care, and they had majorities, so they were able to push it through. Yeah. So... They're not, they're basically just making up the rules as they go along, and people are going to suffer for it. The court was stacked with conservatives to undo all the progress that had been made without actually having to get people to vote for it. Losing the progressive slash conservative split in the Supreme Court was the biggest challenge to Roe v. Wade. The latest additions, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, were appointed to the court by Trump. The conservatives have the advantage and now can start making the changes set in motion years ago. The final blow to the foundation of Roe versus Wade was Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. The case questioned the legitimacy of a Mississippi law looking to ban most abortions after just 15 weeks of pregnancy. All the lower courts had ruled that the law was unconstitutional under Roe versus Wade, which guaranteed the right to an abortion up to 23 weeks. The Supreme Court ruled 6-3 in favor of upholding the Mississippi law, and this effectively caused for a vote to be decided on connecting the case to both Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And that vote was 5-4. The five justices were Samuel Alito, Amy Coney Barrett, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Clarence Thomas. On June 24th, 2022, the Supreme Court wiped away the constitutional right to abortion. The majority opinion from Judge Alito was leaked a month prior. A majority opinion is like a little debrief that explains the judicial options written by one or more of the judges. So we knew that this might be a possibility. Yeah, I mean, it was basically determined at that point. The only thing that could have happened would have been for them to codify it Um like years ago when Obama was president. Well, I mean, that would have been even done a while having ago, that month, even yes. having that month in between the decisions, yeah. there could have been a, an executive order. Mm-hmm. It could have been like there were options to to try and hold on to it a bit longer yes. anyway. In his majority opinion, Justice Alito states, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak and the decision has had damaging consequences. And far from bringing about a national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. It's time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. Okay, so So that hurt hurt to read. Like, it hurt to say those words out loud. So, like, what does that mean exactly? Like, what happened? So, was abortion banned on the federal level? No. Basically, it means it's up to the states to decide. Ugh. Yeah. Now, by the next day, at least 13 states started to enforce their laws that restricted or banned abortion. These were called trigger laws. They were laws that were already put in place and would go into effect immediately after decision from the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade. I like to, like, think about that for a second. Like, there's so many things going on in government and local government, but they set up these laws mm-hmm. to strip these rights away ages ago. Yeah. Yeah, they were in place and they just had to activate them as soon as they were able to. Some of these places don't even have clean water and this is what they've been worrying about. It's... (sighs) 
this is the bad place. This is the bad place. Yeah. During a press conference, President Biden said the fight to preserve abortion rights will now be fought at the ballot box. Then he encouraged Americans to elect lawmakers who plan on protecting abortion access. But I like, isn't that did. what we did? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> we did. We that's what we were trying to do. And you know what? Yes. Keep going out and keep voting. It is important. You have What's to. more important is voting at your local elections. Oh, absolutely. New York. We got an election coming up in August. Mm -hmm. Get out there and vote. They had to split our primary into two sections for some weird reason. So we voted in in June. Mm -hmm. And we've got to vote again in August before the November election. So that's for New Yorkers out there. I know a good chunk of you are, are from the state. But yeah, that's what we're trying to do. That's what we thought we were doing. I mean, yes and no. Like, a lot of us knew that Biden was pretty middle of the road. But like... And that's it, how we, he got elected, right? Because we couldn't have someone who was so yeah. left-leaning, which I don't think. But, like, they could have Trump, whatever. I Exactly. All I want is, like, Bernie Sanders. Like, I want the most radical other side because the other way isn't working, right? This is not the time for this, for the for anger you, that I'm For getting, you to rant. <laughs> for me to rant about how, like, Bernie's probably never going to run again because he's so old. And we had the opportunity to make things better. And I think that things would have been good for both sides under Bernie because he's been working for both sides forever. But we, like, oh, I don't think that, no, his his ideas are too progressive. People won't like that in the South. Like, maybe, maybe just try. I don't know. I know. I don't know what to do anymore. All of it is the bad place. And it's very frustrating. And, like, that's why this episode is happening, right? Like, yeah. what what do we do about this besides rant? Rant. You can go out and vote. And we're going to go vote. We're going to go vote blue. Mm -hmm. Because, like, that's what you have to do, right? But, like, what's next? In this section, we're going to do a little bit of talking about the media response to Roe versus Wade, in particular, the reactions when it was put in place, and then the ways in which it has been challenged over the years and with the recent overturning of the law. Let's go back, all the way back, to 1973. Let's talk a little bit about how the news handled the establishment of the Supreme Court ruling on Roe versus Wade. One of the things I found in my research was um, the CBS News report by Walter Cronkite from January 1973, when he announced the Supreme Court ruling on Roe v. Wade. It was borderline fascinating to me because he, like, literally just reported the news. It, it shouldn't be a novel concept, but, What's like... that like? <laughs> there were two people that were interviewed for the purpose of the news broadcast, but there was one from each side of the debate, and they were just presented in the context of the larger news report. It wasn't, like, this pundit bullshit that we have now. Yeah, Walter Cronkite committed on how the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. He then followed it up by stating, the anti-abortion laws of the 46 states were rendered unconstitutional. He never once mentioned his own opinion on it. Because you know what? It's like not his job. It's the fucking news. And he was just reporting it. So like, I, like what? What is that world like? Yes and no, because I like to know that the people who I'm watching have a conscience. I like okay so I'm going to just say like I I don't agree with wanting to know where they stand on it. it mm -hmm. It's okay that they have a position and if they like address that outside of the news report itself like if they acknowledge okay. that. But well, to me their job is to report the facts to me. Yes. And 
allow me to then understand and interpret this. If I need guidance elsewhere, then that's when I can turn to others in my community okay. or et cetera. That's, that's my view. So my, my thing is like, I want to know like what certain people think, but what we get now is like what Tucker Carlson thinks about things, but that's not news. That's like weird entertainment. So like yeah. if you're going to him for like your news source, like there's something wrong with you. I but think the same there are still people for Colbert. Like I don't and Rachel Maddow. Fun. So that's what I'm thinking. It's I was like fun to yeah. have that information, sure. Mm-hmm. But like, I just want like present me the facts and let me then figure out on my own like what are the ramifications. Now I understand a lot of people won't go figure it out on their own, mm-hmm. but the consequences of that have been QAnon. Yes, but I think. What it comes down to, I mean, doesn't everything come back to capitalism? You have to sell the papers. You have to get the ratings. A show that's just going to be, we just report exactly the news, and this is how it is. It's not going to be as entertaining as watching, like, Tucker Carlson, like, lose his shit over something dumb or agreeing so hard with Rachel Maddow about something and just streaming at your TV. It's it's not the same. Like, I'm, I guess I'm, like, devil's advocate here for shit, but, like... You're not looking, you're looking for news news. Like you can find that, but it's not going to be as entertaining. I don't want to be entertained. That's what I'm saying. The things that we can point to now that are the biggest and the loudest are way more entertainment than they are actual news. Exactly. So I do think that there are still people like Walter Conkite who like just did the facts, but there's way more. It's way harder to find. No, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. It's way harder to find. So for everyone else that looks like this is what the news is like. Because, I mean, people on both sides say that, right? Like, oh, the news is so sensationalized. But it's that's not news. No. That's not news that we're this watching. This is news. Walter Cronkite was news. Was news, yeah. And, like, we don't have many of those people anymore. No. Yeah. Anyway. During that segment, he tur- uh, Walter Cronkite turned it over to CBS News correspondent George Herman, who provided more details on the decision, informing viewers of how the court voted to make abortion the decision of a pregnant woman's doctor. No, not the woman herself, her doctor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's still that. Yeah. And he was probably a male. <laughs> more than likely. More than likely. Um, states could not restrict the doctor's right. Again, not the woman's right. The doctor's right. If his patient needed an abortion in the first trimester. Keyword in that sentence, though, was... His patient. His. Yeah. His patient. I mean, also, people do that now. They do. They I do, love correcting people because I'm like, no, my doctor's a woman. Yeah. She. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But even when we don't know, we tend to, like, default to the he. I think, I feel like male is just default. People do that with dogs and stuff all the oh, time. Oh, but that's true unless it's, like, a nurse mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. an elementary school teacher or, you know, something like that. I just put it into this cookie. But you're so right. Gosh, I have a lot of nurse friends. And at least half of them are male. Yeah. And whenever I'm like, oh, my nurse friend told me this. Well, she's wrong about that. He's not wrong. But thank you. (laughs) Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, in the segment, uh, Herman goes on to explain the established circumstances for the second trimester would allow individual states to establish laws regulating but not prohibiting the operation. In the third trimester, states were granted the right to deny abortions when it was clear that the fetus was able to live outside of the womb. Like, I love that they use the word fetus Mm -hmm. here in the news report because, like, that's accurate. It's not a baby at this point. And using the word baby, I think, is manipulative. It absolutely is. Anyway, they mentioned that the 46 states would have to change their anti-abortion laws and that the Nixon White House had made no comment in time for the news report. 
Herman went on to acknowledge that there had been an immediate reaction to the change in the law and then included separate interview clips with Dr. Alan Guttmacher from Planned Parenthood and Monsignor James McHugh, who provided opposing positions on the decision. There was also a segment uh, that they did with a woman named Mary Doe, who was identified as a 22-year-old former mental patient. She mentioned how she'd lived in a state where abortion had been illegal. She was forced to carry multiple fetuses to term. She explains that because she was unable to care for them, her first two children had been put up for adoption. And then when she was impregnated by her husband for a third and fourth time, she was forced to give them up for adoption as well. That's completely unfair. That's like cruel at that point. Yeah. You know, and she's only 22 years old. Mm -hmm. She's listed as a former mental patient. I mean, who knows what that meant at that time? Yeah. Um, because that was like, oh, you have your period too long. You're Bitches a mental patient. Yeah. <laughs> You're hysterical. hysterical. So, yeah, like that's. That's one of those extenuating circumstances where if she doesn't have access to birth control, she mm -hmm. is married. Like, why? But she's unable to raise her children. Like, why should she keep bringing children into the world? Exactly. But, like, follow-up question. She's married. Where's this dude? Why are they taking the kids? Why isn't he taking care of them? Um, He's a man. I think it's fascinating going back how because it was just news and not like let's listen to pundits for an hour mm -hmm. like he just covered the news in like three and a half minutes he's like here are the facts this is what happened this is the consequence here are two positions here's one person who is actually like a part of the decision and that's the news <laughs> move on like you want to know more do your research go buy that encyclopedia <laughs> Now, I want to talk about, like, that week leading up to the decision, before Cronkite even does his news mm -hmm. uh, news segment, mm -hmm. right? And it's not, not that far. What was it? In fact, it was actually, like, the same day. You know, so January 22nd, 1973, Chief Justice Warren Berger was reading the latest issue of Time magazine. I'm just imagining him on the toilet. I don't know why I shouldn't, but... What? Like, just sure. <laughs> Let's, but is he also wearing the robe? Because that's where I just went. Like, he's got the robe and he's got like polka dot boxer shorts. Yeah. <laughs> and those like the things that hold up your socks. Listen, I know this topic is on abortion. <laughs> we just know. have to make light when we can. When we can. Anyway, in this issue of Time magazine, there was an article titled Abortion on Demand. And it was regarding the court's ruling on Roe v. Wade. Uh, only problem? The court had yet to issue its landmark decision. They were planning to, like that very afternoon, in fact. But it was not supposed to be out in the world at that point. Was it a magazine from the future? Well, technically, yeah. I mean, the magazine was dated January 29th, 1973. But, like, honestly, you know how magazines usually mm -hmm. come out, like, before the date listed on yeah. them. So, yeah, that happened. It was, like, a week early. Who was the source? A Supreme Court justice clerk for Justice Justice Lewis Powell named Larry Hammond, who provided the information to reporter David Bethwick. Bethwick? Beckwith. Beckwith? David Beckwith. On the condition that it only be published after the ruling was made public. Apparently, the decision, the decision announcement had been delayed and time published the article anyway. Ethics. <laughs> la, la, la. <laughs> 
An earlier leak took place in June of 1972. This one concerning the newspaper, The Washington Post. Using information from an internal memo written by Justice William O. Douglas, The Washington Post published a story about the court's deliberations. Roe vs. Wade had been argued in December of 1971, but due to timing issues and the arrival of two new justices since the initial hearings of the case, Justice Berger pushed for postponement and re-argument of the case. Roe v. Wade was challenged almost immediately as it was established, which we mentioned before, and the coverage of its implementation over the next nearly 50 years addressed a number of different perspectives. In the periodical, The Catholic Transcript from 1973, this is probably one of the earliest challenges to the decision. In an article titled, Constitutionality of Rhode Island Abortion Law Challenged, it talks about the case that the ACLU brought to the U.S. District Court challenging the decision made by Rhode Island's legislator and upheld by the governor at that time, Philip Knoll. Shortly after the passing of Roe, Rhode Island's law restricted abortions to those cases when the life of the mother was in danger. It also refers to the unborn fetus as a person and claims that life begins at the moment of conception. Further proposals related to this law would require permission from the Rhode Island Family Court before an abortion could be performed. Again, we've already talked about the issues of having to wait on the court to decide. Because the rights of the fetus would be fully considered as a person, that fetus would have an attorney appointed to represent them before permission for an abortion could be granted by the court. I feel like Rhode Island's like, how can we waste everyone's time and money? Like, who's paying that lawyer for the fetus? The fetus have, like, a tiny wallet in there? It'd be cheaper to pay for the abortion. It would be cheaper to pay for it. And everyone's time, like... What are you doing? I guess it's like by the time you went all the way to court, they were like, well, I guess this young lady means business and we should like let her do what she wants. But probably they were just like, They were trying to delay it long enough where they had to force them to give birth. And then probably give her a bill for like all this legal shit. Oh, yeah. Your child owes us this. Yeah. (laughs) Another perspective comes from Big Mama Rag from April 1976. Now, Big Mama Rag Incorporated is a feminist organization that was established in Colorado in 1972 for the purposes of promoting women's rights and educating the public on issues concerning the women's movement. They conduct educational activities on women's issues, operate a free library, and publish a feminist newspaper of the same name. One article titled, Panel Discusses Abortion's Legal Aspects by Lynette Cazot discusses the 1976 Western Regional Conference on Abortion. They discussed the methods being used to restrict women's rights. These included state legislation, federal legislation, courtroom tactics, and constitutional amendments. This article confronted the fact that, like many constitutional decisions, Roe v. Wade didn't really solve the problem of abortion, but rather defined the rules and guidelines for future debate on the topic something we saw each time the issue was brought before the Supreme Court in later years. Much of the wording in the Roe v. Wade decision allowed for loose interpretations of the law, one in particular about the viability of the fetus and another about the methods which could be used and who can conduct the procedure. And another article in the same issue entitled Abortion Issues, Class and Race Related by Linda Fowler, the author addressed the social and economical issues that influence the access to abortions. She also covers how the lack of access to contraceptives leads to the need for more abortions and how all of this is related to socioeconomical oppression and the political conditions in which women live in. Now we're going to jump ahead to 1992. This is the year that Planned Parenthood v. Casey reaches the Supreme Court. 
In the 19 years between the initial ruling of Roe v. Wade and this case, there have been numerous attempts to overturn the decision, some of which we talked about before, Mm -hmm. and the media coverage ran the spectrum from fully opposed to overall support to declaring that the decision didn't go far enough. So in The Guardian, formerly The National Guardian, this was a left-wing weekly newspaper out of New York, not to be confused with the British news stores that we're familiar with these days. In their January 22nd issue from 1992, they focused on Roe versus Wade and included an editorial and a handful of articles on the subject. This article came out six months before Planned Parenthood versus Casey was decided by the courts. In the main story, they addressed the fact that women under 18 were required to notify at least one parent and get the consent of that parent before being allowed to have an abortion. And they specify that in Pennsylvania, at that time, wives were required to notify husbands if they wished to have an abortion. They go on to explain how in many parts of the country, women do not have access to abortion, even if it is legal. There are fewer doctors being trained to do abortions, and people have to travel long distances to find a provider. The article cites that 80% of the counties in the U.S. have no abortion providers. In another article titled Pro-Choice Actions from Voting to Protest by Dana Luciano, the author addresses the lack of access to abortion for poor women. Due to the lack of public funding for abortion, many people do not have access to the service. The article quotes a woman named Edie Scripps from the Chicago Clinic Defense Committee who states, Abortion is already lost for poor women, for women of color. It is now a question of regaining abortion rights for these women. In 1992, Medicaid funds only covered abortions for low-income women in 13 states, and federal Medicaid funding had been banned since 1977. While these women may have had the legal right to abortions, they did not have access to them. This and other restrictions put in place after the passing of Roe v. Wade made it difficult or nearly impossible for many people to access the care that they needed to terminate a pregnancy. Next, we're going to look at articles from the Catholic Commentator, both from August 1992 and November 1992. The previous article reference came out months before the decision was made in, Ca- in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, but clearly it was a contentious issue. While there had always been opposition to Roe, we saw increases in that opposition in the months following the Casey decision. The Catholic Commentator is a newspaper for the Diocese of Baton Rouge, and they had plenty to say on that topic at the time. In their August 5th, 1992 issue, there were news reports out of California that condemned abortion. One mentioned that it was not enough to believe that it was a sin, but you had to also encourage others to believe the same thing. <sighs> Another blamed the lack of religion on the decision to have an abortion, stating that the more roots one had to the church, the less likely they were to have an abortion. But that's literally not fucking true. But go off church. Like, they, do what it, you need to do. Say what you need to say, but like that's that's not true. Like as we stated before, there was a whole network of priests and rabbis and deacons who saw and counseled people who found themselves with an unwanted pregnancy. Well, I do think there's a difference here with um, the Catholic Church and with Christianity in general, and also um, you know at this point we're talking twenty years after nineteen twenty years after the decision had been made, the church is kind of doubling down. Well, there was a network of priests that were involved in supporting abortion rights. Mm. The majority probably wasn't in that boat. And coming down from like Rome and all of that, Mm. there were a lot more restrictions. Maybe they were less likely to report having had an abortion. Yeah. But having an abortion, I think that's pretty universal across the board. Anyway, in an editorial by Father John Carville in this issue, he stated that the anti-God legal movement is what's leading the abortion debate. Love it. Hmm. 
He also took issue with the focus on the freedom on, as he put it, the freedom of the individual mother to be with no reference to the right to life of the child. What? Yeah, like, what does he, what does he mean by that? I think the idea is, like, we have to worry about, like, like kind of going back to that previous thing where in Rhode Island with, like, the, the fetus having... A wallet. A lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> Not a wallet. <laughs> I mean, A little yes. chain wallet. <laughs> but it's that idea of like, how dare you not give a right to life to this fetus? Yeah. But know. by referring to it as a child. I don't know. Listen. I think because in my head, like the terminology is so wrong that I'm just like, sir, why yeah. are you trying to be manipulative? Exactly. Like, it's, but it's so- I think it's important we see where that other side yes. is coming from so mm-hmm. we know how to like best confront that. Yeah. Uh, in a later issue of this newspaper, there was a news report out of Rome that likens abortion to organized crime, with the Italian bishops asking, how can organized criminality be condemned and the murder of an unborn children in the mother's womb be approved? Equating, like, organized crime, like, the mafia? Do they know? Does Rome know what <laughs> the mob was doing around this time? <laughs> well, I think they were talking about, like, in Rome but like yeah. this is how people in Rome were talking about the US right yeah I mean it's just it's so it's so dramatic it's it, it is so and it, it's such a false equivalency yes and and it kind of gives this idea of fear mongering mm-hmm. like oh people having abortions yeah. are as bad as the mob like yeah or like don't go to america they kill babies they'll take yours right out of your arm and it's like it's like when people when people say like oh you're like a baby killer as if like you were going to a nursery and stabbing children meanwhile it's like you're late for your period and you're like fuck let's go get this handled like it's a fetus it's not wearing a onesie saying mommy i love you like it is very different and And honestly in the early stages still like an embryo right yeah Mm. anyway so from the courts to Rome, the topic of Roe vs. Wade made its way all over, even into the living rooms of America via our televisions. Uh, we all remember the very special episodes that were geared to like touch on like certain current events. Now, I some of our listeners might not remember our first example, but like you should definitely go check it out. It is from our youth, and yeah. um, since we're oldies, <laughs> you might not have watched it, but it, it is a a key episode. Also, I was too young for this. I saw this in reruns. Not to be like, um, I'm, you're old, I'm young, because I'm also old. Yeah, I like, do remember when it was on live. Yeah, I definitely saw this in reruns. But what we're talking about is uh, 90210. They actually had a series of episodes uh, where they kind of took a, a pro-life stance. Uh, when college freshman Andrea, remember Andrea with the glasses she was my and favorite. the hair? I was that, like, I was... She was the cool <laughs> nerd, though. Like, yeah, she no, was... No, I mean, that's what I aspired to yeah. do, was to be cool and a nerd. Like, I didn't want to give up my nerdiness, yeah. but I wanted to also be cool. <laughs> so, uh, Andrea finds herself pregnant, and she wants to get an abortion, but her boyfriend is very Catholic, and she's worried that he won't support her choice. When Andrea informs Jesse that she's having an abortion, he threatens to break up with her and storms out. After the scheduled appointment time, Jesse comes back to apologize for not being there for her. But surprise, she didn't go through with it. The two marry and eventually have a baby. And honestly, that kind of bothers me from a 21st century perspective. But in Mm -hmm. the 90s, it was very much like the common trope for 
the abortion decisions like, oh, I'm not going to go through with it. And it wasn't the first time that they dealt with abortion uh, in 90210. Like the first mention had, I think, more of a pro-choice leaning mm-hmm. outcome. I think that the media targeted such a large audience that they needed to give a viewpoint from both sides. So most TV shows, at least the ones before the 2000s, found a way to talk about abortion without actually having a character actually have an abortion or go through one. This is usually done with a pregnancy scare that would lead to characters having discussions. Mm -hmm. Normally, the termination wasn't stigmatized by any of the characters. The angle was that the pregnant person had a really hard decision to make and needed kindness. But I do think it's interesting that none of them actually ended with them having an abortion and that's something that has changed in the in the last few years you have people's stories being told where they're they need to have an abortion they think they want to have an abortion they go and have an abortion and that decision is okay what was it It was a recent show that i was just watching Mm -hmm. oh sex education with sex education she she was got pregnant and she just she was like, I need to go have an abortion. And she asked her friend to be there with her. And I don't recall if he got there in time or not. It wasn't the the father of the baby. But um, she went through with it. And then she went back to her life. She went back to school. And she just, like, kept on with her life. It wasn't, but that's, like, very current, right? Like, oh, yeah. Just, no, yeah. it was within this decade. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm saying. Like, within the last 30 years, things have tra- changed drastically in media portrayals. Mm-hmm. Honestly, the lack of safe abortion care, you know, it made its way into the big screen even earlier than this. In 1987's Dirty Dancing, for example. So in an article for Mike.com, Mia Brett speaks about the coming-of-age story being so much more than just a coming-of-age story. So if you aren't familiar... What's wrong with you? This is not supposed to be a judgy podcast. Oh, wait. Um, <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> Have you met me? First off, this movie is in my top 10. So, like, go watch it right now. Stop. Pause. Don't okay, you're back. <laughs> watch it when you're done with no, this. No, no, no. <laughs> They've paused it. They're back. They had the time of their lives and they owe it all to me. <laughs> now let's jump back Sean's in. Sean's over there about to spit water. <laughs> <laughs> he appreciates that. <laughs> So if you didn't watch it, loser, um, sorry. <laughs> let's not be mean to people, but also you should watch this film. So the plot for those who haven't seen it, it follows Baby, played by Jennifer Grey. She's going to this summer resort with her family. Um, after a resort dancer named Penny gets pregnant, Baby finds herself tasked with stepping in while Penny takes off to get, at the time, which was a, an illegal abortion. The film is set in 1963, so 10 years before Roe. According to the article, Penny's abortion in Dirty Dancing would have taken place right before the abortion rights movement reached a fever pitch in the U.S. In 1963, abortion was illegal nationwide, but the movement for reproductive rights was beginning to gain steam. Eleanor Bergstein, the film screenwriter, told Vice in 2017 that the movie's national sponsor pushed the studio to cut the abortion from the film. But Bergstein had baked it into the plot so thoroughly that it was it simply wasn't possible. Not only did the screenwriter ensure that Penny's abortion would remain a crucial plot point, she also deliberately painted a picture of the dangers associated with illegal abortions. She's quoted as saying, I made it very clear that we would leave in what is, for me, a very purple language. References to dirty knives, a folding table, hearing Penny screaming in the hallway. That harsh language was there so people couldn't gloss over or sugarcoat the realities of not having abortion access. Bergstein goes on to say, The reason that I put language in there was because I felt that, even with it being a coat hanger abortion, a whole generation of young people, and women especially, wouldn't understand what the illegal abortion was. 
Today, that scene feels like a warning of what's about to come rather than a reminder of what we left behind. So now we're going to jump ahead another 30 years and take a look at the media's coverage of the June 2022 ruling just a month ago from when we're recording this. This ruling that overturned the rights established with Roe v. Wade. Over the past three decades, the debate over the right to abortion has raged on. Before the official ruling on Dobbs, a majority draft opinion on the case was leaked. As I mentioned before, it was published by Politico. The draft, which was leaked on May 2nd, 2022, was about 98 pages long. Largely, it largely matched the final decision that was handed down on June 24th of this year. Whoever leaked the report was never identified, but it was for naught, since no action was taken to ensure the preservation of Roe in the interim. It was hard, but I took a moment to dive into sources that would be or were in favor of the eventual Dobbs decision. I probably should have used a private browser, though, because now I'm going to be haunted by pop-ups from the Federalist. (laughs) In a piece called, As Dobbs' Decision Nears, Corporate Media Abortion Propaganda Machine is Firing on All Cylinders. Yeah, that's the title. From June 22nd, two days before the decision was officially declared, the author blames corporate media for being pro-abortion, or at least keeping the pro-abortion movement alive. How about I'm? I don't know. <laughs> Listen, I'm. I'm just saying, like this is this is what I'm now going to be haunted by in my just search history. Clear your cookies, yeah. Did I get rid of it. Yeah, but then I have to log into all my passwords again. So no. <laughs> I mean, pick your pick your poison. <laughs> Towards the end of the piece, they state the attacks on threats are hardly making headlines outside of conservative publications. It goes without saying, if the situation were reversed and pro-lifers were attacking abortion clinics, we would see front-page news stories and wall-to-wall cable news coverage. Um, what? Mm. Like, literally, this is what they do. They do attack abortion clinics. And it is not covered nearly as often as it should be, which is every time. There's, um... I found my way onto TikTok because I guess because I'm like pro-abortion and pro-choice. Um, there's lots of videos of clinic workers that stand outside to protect people from other people who just want to like yell things yeah. on the sidewalk and like try and hand out things. And those people are quite violent, but they're also like really old. So it's like you have to watch like this 20-year-old girl like push back an old man with an umbrella who's trying to like yell at some woman to like not abort her baby. And it's... It's the funny sad, not funny haha. It's just like, this is what we're doing. Yeah. This is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And there are, I mean, if anybody wants, you can just go down the rabbit hole. Those things happen every day. Every day, these people who, a lot of them are volunteers, take time out of their lives to make sure that these people can get the healthcare that they need without being harassed by strangers on the street. Yeah. So yeah. it's not, everyone's not sitting at home being like, well, I guess that's someone else's problem. Like, these conservatives are out in full force making mm-hmm. people's lives terrible. Yeah. Now, this Federalist article is only one example, but to be honest, it was hard enough to get through this one piece because, like, it was full of incendiary language and name-calling. Like, at one point, she refers to fathers who shared how abortion helped them become better fathers today as cowards. So, like, yeah, quality journalism right there. I, I can't. There has been quite a bit of opposition to the decision as well. Yeah. There have been a number of organizations that have come out against the Supreme Court's decision on Dobbs. Many immediately after the announcement was made. Some of them include the National Homelessness Law Center, 
Various medical groups, including the New England Journal of Medicine, the American College of Physicians, and the American Academy of Family Physicians, SALT, which stands for Society of American Law Teachers, the Association of Flight Attendants, the American Association of University Women, and many more. So let's dig a little bit deeper. According to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, ACOG, Induced abortion is an essential component of women's health care. As with other medical matters, the decision to have an abortion should be made by the patient in consultation with their health care provider and without interference from outside parties. They go on to emphasize that those seeking an abortion are entitled to privacy, dignity, respect, and support in their decisions. There are many reasons why a pregnant individual may choose or be required to have an abortion. These include but are by no means limited to contraceptive failure, Barriers to contraceptive access and use, rape, incest, domestic and intimate partner violence, fetal anomalies, illness during pregnancies, exposure to teratogens, which are drugs, chemicals, or even infections that can cause abnormal fetal development. Or, you know, they just want to. Yeah. Pregnancy complications, including placental abruption, bleeding from the placenta previa, preeclampsia or eclampsia, and cardiac or renal conditions may also lead to severe situations in which abortion is the only measure to preserve a person's health or even save their life. So we've already touched on some of it, so we won't get so much deeper on some of the approaches that people have taken because we know that this topic is traumatic enough for many, but mostly to harm for the parents as well. But unsafe abortions have happened for generations, centuries even. Making abortion illegal will not stop or prevent abortions. It will only lead to more unsafe abortions and deaths, both for the mother and the fetus. Today, approximately 21 million people around the world obtain unsafe, illegal abortions each year. And that number is probably even higher because that's the number that's like reported. Reported, yeah. Due to complications from these unsafe procedures, nearly 50,000 of them die annually. Legal abortions are by far safer than illegal ones, but both are safer than childbirth. You can find more information on these numbers from a study conducted by Elizabeth G. Raymond and David A. Grimes entitled The Comparative Safety of Legal Induced Abortions and Childbirth in the United States. Whether abortion-based or not, the best health care is that which is provided free of political interference, a.k.a. the state, in the patient-physician relationship. This is a very personal decision that should be made between the pregnant individual and their doctor and not be guided by political ideology. It's a private decision, which is why it should be protected under the 14th Amendment and an individual's right to privacy. At the end of the day, this is what it boils down to. It's your body, so it should be your choice. It's not the role of the government to decide for you. And again, I'm just going to bring this up one more time, like, Didn't the Republicans used to be the party of less government interference? Mm -hmm. It's also not the decision of the person who impregnated you. Education on safe options is important, but it's not always going to be enough. Sure, abstinence, great for some, not for many. But that doesn't mean that there should be a risk for getting pregnant each time someone wants to have sex. Some women do not choose to have sex. According to Amnesty International, at least one in 10 girls worldwide under the age of 18 have been forced to have sex or perform sexual acts. This number is likely to be given, is likely to be even higher because many of them are afraid to report what happens to them. 40% of women in childbearing age live in countries where abortion is banned, restricted, or not accessible including those in the United States. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And approximately 215 million women are not using contraception, even though they want to stop or delay having children. Many times this is due to a lack of access. Let's consider the situation specifically in the U.S. You know, many people will say, like, hey, they're just 
throwing it back to the states, right, in terms of the Dobbs decision. But there's nothing to stop the national government from changing if the Republicans take Congress in a future election. And with the court stacked the way it is, they could vote in support of that quite easily. Mm -hmm. The decision ignores the precedents that were established by Roe versus Wade and may be used to overturn other legal precedents that have been previously established. And in case you're not familiar, basically a precedent refers to a decision that was considered as an authority for deciding subsequent cases involving identical or similar factors. So basically, it's the rules that we all agreed upon years ago. So you can't just go change them. According to the information we found from the Legal Information Institute at Cornell Law School, precedent is incorporated into the doctrine of stare decisis and requires courts to apply the law in the same manner to cases with the same facts. Stare decisis is the doctrine that courts will adhere to precedent in making their decision. Literally, it translates from Latin to stand by things decided. Why are all legal terms so Latin? It's because they're the ones who decide, who like created laws. Probably. I mean, biology things are all Latin too, so. True. true. I don't know. Maybe because it's a dead language, things don't change, and so they can maintain their meaning. I just made that up, but it sounds good. (laughs) It does. I'm not a language scientist. (laughs) I'm not a law scientist. So speaking of laws, the laws that were mentioned in the majority opinion that might be overturned with the changes established in the Dobbs decision include Griswold versus Connecticut, the right to married couples to buy and use contraceptives without the state involvement. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine? No, there are states where like, I mean, think about it. People go to the pharmacy and their pharmacist is like, no, I don't feel like filling that prescription. It goes against my beliefs. I you know what? You shouldn't things. be a fucking pharmacist then. That does sound insane. I just, I, I, I think I've just been so in my like little New York liberal bubble that like things like that don't make sense to me. Oh, I mean, they don't make sense because they don't make yeah. sense. But yeah. Other uh, cases include Lawrence versus Texas, uh, the legality of same sex sexual activity. Yeah. Like just in your own house. Yeah. Who you want to have sex with being illegal. Obergefell versus Hodges, the legality of same-sex marriage. Something that was literally just decided, like, in the last decade. 2015, which seems insane to think of, Mm -hmm. I guess because, like, everyone got married, right? Because I'm like, I haven't been to a gay wedding. No, I have. But, like, I'm just thinking of, like, all the gay weddings that I've seen. And it's like, oh, because they were like, finally, it's time. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jesus. So another case that was not mentioned in the majority of opinion, but could theoretically be included is Loving v. Virginia, right? The right to interracial marriage. That's another one that fucking grinds my gears. I mean, and rightly so. Yeah. Right. Like, You're in an interracial marriage. <laughs> my, my marriage would just be like invalidated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be considered illegal. Now, I think the reason it wasn't mentioned now is because of Clarence Thomas is also in an interracial relationship and that might be the line that he draws i I don't know i feel like there's lots of politicians who will like what is it called cutting off your nose to spite your face like yeah but he's not supposed to be a politician that's the problem his wife certainly is oh she's she's something she is something anyway but that that is another one of those because the idea is like oh these things weren't around when the constitution was Mm -hmm. created so they shouldn't be legal now see that's the thing that's really hypocritical about it because when you look at like gun violence and like them wanting to like maybe change these gun laws AR-15s and, like, these insane things that we have now weren't around when they were talking about the right to bear arms. Like, they were talking about fucking muskets. So, like, if anything needs to be changed, wouldn't this need to be changed as well? You and your logic. (laughs) 
So the short answer of who will be affected by the overturning of Roe versus Wade is everyone. Everybody. What yeah. is that movie? Everybody. I don't know. They're like, get ev- No, it's everyone. Where he's like, call, call them. Everyone. And they're like, everyone. Everyone. What movie is that? I don't know, but write in and tell us. Tweet at us. What is that movie? I, my husband knows. Tag us at Big Rips Pod. Yes. What her husband. Movie? Her nameless husband. <laughs> she Theo. always says my husband. I don't, because I feel like they I'm just know. like, Theo, they know him. I don't know. What if it's your first episode? You're like, who the fuck is that guy? Then go back and listen and figure it out. I'm sorry, but no. Anyway, <laughs> Theo would absolutely know. Maybe he'll he'll write in. Yeah, write in, Theo. At um, least he listens. Sean oh, doesn't he... listen. <laughs> Off topic. <laughs> he had a question about the Vibe comic that you read. So maybe post something on Instagram about it. Okay. Yeah. He was like, what was that comic about? And I was like, I don't know. Our podcast isn't about that comic. Okay. Ask her. Well, yeah, he should tweet at me. Well, he goes, oh, there's all these things that you guys bring up, like, these interesting questions, and then, like, you don't answer them. And then, like, it just doesn't get answered. And I was like, like, what? And he was like, some thought you had about something. And I was like, all right. Oh, that narrows it down. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, you tweeted us. Or Instagram at like, us. in the middle of listening to it. Yeah. Like, that's what I do. I tweet at podcasts while I'm listening to that's them. That's what I do, absolutely. And then they're like, wait, I don't remember this because we recorded it a month ago, but it's fine. <laughs> So abortion is healthcare, and when people don't have access to it, it can be, it can lead to some pretty harsh consequences. Yeah. So we're going to go over some of the groups that will be directly affected by this. Let's start with disabled people. According to a survey conducted by the Bureau of Justice Statistics, disabled people are three times more likely than non-disabled people to experience sexual assault. For some disabled people, carrying a pregnancy to term could put their own life in danger. Mia Ives-Ruble is the director for the Disability Justice Initiative at American Progress. In an interview, she stated that due to her disability, she doesn't know if she'd be able to carry a pregnancy to term. Her short stature, low lung capacity, and brittle bone disease means pregnancy could leave her life at risk. She's quoted as saying, If I'm not able to have an abortion, and if I accidentally get pregnant, that could have significant impacts on my health. That's a huge concern for me, as an individual who is continuing to focus on my career and as a person who wants to have a choice in the matter. People looking to become parents will not be able to take action when it comes to genetic testing and, per- and prenatal screening. Access to legal abortions gives parents the choice to decide whether to carry the pregnancy to term. The end of row will mean that they may no longer be able to make that decision. Most testing can be done before if the parents are actively planning a family, but some testing can't be done until the first weeks of pregnancy. This can leave parents between a rock and a hard place. Caring for a special needs child is expensive and it's a lifelong decision that should not involve the government. Now, blue states might be swarmed with people seeking abortions, right? Especially if mm-hmm. these other states are, are banning them. This will make it hard for anyone to get one in a timely manner. I mean, I think about, like, just in Brooklyn when the hospital in... Oh, my God, you're, like, a COVID vaccine? No, no, I, oh. I'm just talking about, like, the, the closing of Long Island College Hospital over mm-hmm. in Brooklyn Heights moved all of those people seeking hospital care over here to Methodist. Yeah. And now there's like double the people, but the same number of healthcare providers. So even if you're going to your local clinic for typical care, it's going to be busy with other people who might be seeking care from nearby States. Clinics will be overwhelmed and the medical professionals like they've had enough burnout with, with COVID and, Mm -hmm. and just life in general. 
Another consequence will be a more divided uh, racial and social economical class. Wealthy women will always have access to abortion care. Yep. Like always. Yep. Especially those who say that they're against it. Oh, yeah. They'll just do it. In Theirs the don't count. Mm-hmm. No. So back in the day, in the 1960s, there was a chartered flight that would go to Tokyo. It would take women from the West Coast to Tokyo for an abortion. The cost of that flight was $2,000. In the and, 1960s. In the 1960s, Yes. And whatever $2,000 was in the 1960s, probably a lot. a lot. Yeah. But these flights were full. These flights were filled with normal women who could afford this and would go get their abortions done and come back. The overturning of Roe versus Wade would absolutely affect lower income women, women of color, teens, and trans people who are looking to seek abortions who don't have daddy's money to fall back on or a wealthy husband or a wealthy mistress Wife. person. <laughs> who? Yes, exactly. Around 64% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, with the cost of living just just on the rise. Constantly. Constantly. Adding a child to that could overwhelm and financially cripple certain groups who are already struggling. Well, let's talk about teenagers. According to DoSomething.org, less than 2% of teen moms earn a college degree by age 30. Now, this leads to economic and employment challenges, which can leave the family at a disadvantage. Outside of financial issues, teens who become parents lose out on their childhoods. This can breed stress and resentment. Of course, being a teen parent isn't always a death sentence. With support, teens and their babies can thrive. But family and financial support isn't always a guarantee. Another consequence will be for rape victims and victims of incest. While there are many states that have an exception for rape and incest, there are a lot more that don't. Like a ton more that just... Yeah. Don't even consider it. Mm-hmm. Meaning that after dealing with the trauma of being raped, many women will not have to carry their rapist baby to term. By now, we've all heard about that 10-year-old girl who was raped and then forced to travel out of the state to terminate her pregnancy. None of this should be our business. This is an impossible situation that sadly that this family needs to deal with. Now people are looking into finding the family and looking to charge the doctor with a crime. That's fucked up. Yeah. We think that it's not a long shot to say that a 10-year-old is not ready to be a mother. They can't even ride in the front seat of a car. Would you let a 10-year-old babysit your child? No. Just saying. Absolutely not. They can't even ride in the front seat of the car. No, That's a good point. No, they have to ride in the back. And sometimes, depending on their height, they need those little booster seats. Yep. Like, they're not equipped. Anyway, especially one that has gone through a trauma like being raped. Having to fight for the right to regain some control after such a traumatic event is cruel. And no one should have to do that. Well, let's talk a little bit about education. The U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade is setting off a chain of, of events in almost every facet of society. So... With education, like, obviously, like, that's going to be impacted. Mm -hmm. According to Education Weekly, while teenagers account for a relatively small percentage of those who get abortions, researchers estimate that new restrictions could lead to an uptick in teen births, putting new demands on schools in a system that some experts argue already fails to support teen parents in academic success and graduation. Are schools prepared to provide daycare or maybe remote school for a student with a high-risk pregnancy? Will GED classes become more popular? I mean, only time will tell for now, but, like, I put my money on the fact that these options will not be available for most people. No, these, these, these people are going to fall by the wayside. It's going to be like, well, that was your choice, so, like, you can either try and stay in school or not, but, like, we're not going to make any accommodations for you. Yeah. The court's decision will also affect the educator workforce. About 76% of teachers are women, and most don't have access to paid parental leave. This means a loss of income and sometimes even professional difficulties for new parents. 
Abortion access will decide who can go to school and where. Like we said earlier, most teenagers aren't able to earn a degree after having a child. Pursuing any higher ed might become impossible for some, setting women back in the workforce. I've actually been thinking about the the where part of this conversation for some time now. So, like, we both work in colleges. I don't know how closely you work with admissions, but, like, I do. And I wonder what admissions rates will look like in red state schools. Well, like, I, I mean, I don't work with admissions at all, but mm-hmm. I work... I teach in a black and Latino studies department. Mm-hmm. And when we think about populations that will be more adversely affected yeah. by this, this could have an impact on the number of students who are interested in pursuing careers and fields uh, within mm. what I teach. Yeah. So what I've been thinking about is say that I'm like a mom. Part of me would be insanely worried to send my kid to send my college freshman to a school in a red state where she's got less rights, but like pretty good odds of being sexually assaulted. According to RAIN, which stands for uh, the Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network um, of undergraduate students, 26.4 percent of females will experience rape or sexual assault through physical force, violence or incapacitation. I think it would be interesting to see if people start rethinking where they want to go to college, where they're taking jobs or where you're buying a house. I mean, that's a great point. I think, honestly, yeah, like that. Yeah, like if you got a job offer. I just can't see myself living in a red state to begin with. But that's yes. me as a grown ass woman. But like, see, there as places, a college freshman, like yeah. as, a, as a high school senior, I applied to a college in Virginia. Why? Mm. I don't know. Cause it, because they might have had a good program. Like, be, no, literally it was because they showed up at my college school fair, like <laughs> like the school college fair. And I was like, oh, this looks like a pretty campus. And mm. they have like an English major. Who doesn't have a fucking English major? <laughs> you know, let me go there because it's far away from where I live. Mm-hmm. Right. That's sort of the rationale. But like, what if that was like your dream school? And now it's like, well, now there's a huge umbrella concern about going to this place. Yeah. Like, I wonder what what that'll look like, what that'll do to admissions rates. Mm-hmm. That's just a thought. I mean, from a medical standpoint, the decision will place the reproductive health of black women and other women of color at a real great risk. The disparities in maternal care have been a huge problem for them for a long time. Keisha and Blaine, a professor of Africana Studies and History at Brown University, voiced concerns about the stripping away of abortion access. She stated... One of the outcomes of the Roe v. Wade decision that concerns me most is how the removal of Roe's protections will worsen maternal health conditions for black women. The United States already has a high maternal mortality rate with an average of 23.8 deaths per 100,000 live births in 2020, according to the CDC. To compare, the second highest is France with 8.7 deaths. That difference is huge. Yeah, that that's drastic. Mm-hmm. The same report revealed that black women died at nearly three times the rate of women from other races, averaging 55.3 deaths per 100,000 births. And this is a really sad reality, and it's the result of decades-long racist and discriminatory practices in healthcare. I mean, that could be an episode all in itself. Like, I can tell you my tales of going to the ER while black and searching for doctors and nurses of color so that I can have just an ease of care and not have to worry about like dumb shit. This is mm-hmm. all system. This is all a systemic issue that remains at the core of the medical profession. And it's going to have a deeper impact on the lives of black women and their families. The center for disease control and prevention estimates that more than one third of abortion patients in the United States are black women, meaning that post row black women will be most impacted by the ban on abortion in most red States. 
As a result, the decision to end legal access to abortions will also further exacerbate the disproportionately high maternal mortality rate among black women and place their reproductive health at a greater risk. Another consequence of all this is going to be the way that we care for people who have miscarriages. The standard of care for treating a miscarriage is the same standard of care as providing an abortion. If someone has a miscarriage, medication is given to empty the uterus. This is done to avoid things like infection. Mm -hmm. These medications may not be available, leaving a mother who has just gone through a terrible loss to continue carrying a pregnancy that is no longer viable and risk infection while doing it. This is already happening in Texas. There have been reports of pharmacists in Texas not filling those prescriptions for people who are suff- who have suffered miscarriages. Yeah. So it goes beyond just the birth control. Mm-hmm. It's like, hi, they've already lost. And usually, like, with a miscarriage, that baby is wanted. Yeah, exactly. And so you're, like, doubling down on that traumatization. Because you're lumping everyone together by saying, mm-hmm. like, all babies' lives need to be born and need to go through. It can't be lumped together. That's why these shouldn't be legal decisions. These should be decisions with your doctor. Exactly. That's exactly no what. one says like, oh, we should or shouldn't give radiology or radiology. We shouldn't should or shouldn't give uh, radiation treatments to cancer patients mm-hmm. because that should be decided by the state. Yeah. They, this is the only one that everyone is getting involved in. Like we said, pregnancy is riskier than abortion. Listen to that again. Pregnancy is riskier than an abortion. Mm -hmm. There are things that can come up that would risk the life of the pregnant parent, and many states are not taking those cases into consideration. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, about 700 women die from pregnancy every year. These deaths can stem from heart disease or preeclampsia, which can put you at a very high risk for stroke. While some states have medical exemption, not all do, and some are very conditional, and they have delays in Mm -hmm. sort of determining that. Some things might not apply, like you may have to continue the pregnancy despite of the risks. It's like, oh, if we can still hear the fetal heartbeat for whatever reason, then we have to let you keep suffering. Mm -hmm. And we also spoke about genetic issues earlier. A woman can be forced to carry a fetus that will not survive outside of the womb. The physical and emotional toll of this will be immeasurable. Now, let's shift gears for a minute here. Like, let's discuss the economy because, you know, We all know that that's what drives so much of this world and absolutely in this country. Money makes the world go round. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) We need women in the workforce. They're essential to our economy. Mm -hmm. Overturning Roe would change a woman's ability to support herself and her family. Most women who have abortions are already mothers, at least 60% of them. They might be struggling with the child they already have or thriving. Or maybe they're at risk for dying and they want to be there for that child who was already born. That's very true. According to a study done by the Journal of Pediatrics, Dr. Diana Green Foster says this is an issue that affects women's own decision making about their lives and their families. She's a professor at the University of California, San Francisco, and has examined the effects of unwanted pregnancies on women's life. She goes on to say, it is not irresponsible people who are in this situation. It is people who are trying to make the responsible decision to take care of themselves and their kids. When we take that decision away from people and instead let the government decide when they have a baby, their outcomes are worse. We are talking about overriding people's own life course and family decisions. Forced birthing will decrease workforce participation. Remember when people complained and went on and on about how nobody wanted to work? I mean, like they always have. Did, very quick sidebar, like, did you see that Twitter thread that was, like, news articles stating these people don't want, like, these 
these days people don't want to work and it had like articles going all the way back to the 19th century <laughs> no I, d- I saw you say something and then I replied with the Kim Kardashian meme with her looking behind the bush because yes. I remember that quote about how she was saying that people don't want to get off their fucking asses and work anymore yes did she write all these articles <laughs> <laughs> no I, she clearly didn't read them all Anyway, decreased numbers of working adults will be worse with pregnant people out of the job force for at least three to four months. Mm -hmm. But I mean, this could be even longer if their job doesn't pay better than like the cost of childcare. A lot of people have to make that decision. It's like, do I want to go back to work? How much do I make? How much is daycare? I'm literally working to pay for daycare. I'm just going to stay home with my kid and then figure out something when they go to school. And that's like three to four years. Like depending on what state you live in, we knock on wood, but like... New York City has, like, a very good, like, pre-K education. Like, you can start going when you're, like, three or four, I think. Yeah, yeah. Lots of states don't have that. Like, you start in, like, pre-K or, like, first grade. So, like, you have to figure out what to do with your kid until you're, like, six. Until the kid's, like, Kindergarten or first grade. Yeah. What did I say? Pre-K or first grade. Yeah. So, like, you have to figure out who's watching this kid. Oh, it's me because we can't afford to have someone else watch it. I'm out of work for six years. Yeah, exactly. And then try going back to work right. after those With six years. With that big gap in employment, what do you do? Yeah, exactly. So the long-term effects are going to be similar to what we saw during early COVID times. People aren't going to work, so there's going to be less money for things that aren't deemed necessary, like going out to eat, going to the bar, going to the movies, bowling. Like That's going to happen less and less, impacting people who hold, those, who hold jobs in those fields. And yeah, it's a chain effect. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And like how many restaurants and stuff shut down during COVID? Because it was like, well, I don't have money to go out and buy anything. Mm-hmm. So like the restaurant that I used to go to every Friday night, I don't go anymore. And, and lots if, of other people don't either. And so. if not as many people are working, then the employees that are there are expected to work more, harder mm-hmm. and longer hours. And they get burnt out mm-hmm. and stop working there. Yeah. And then like that place is no more. In the book, the Turnaway Study, 10 years, a 10 years, 1,000 women, and the consequences of having or being denied an abortion. That is a long title, but it does encompass everything. Yeah. In the book, a 21-year-old, a 24-year-old woman is quoted as saying, pregnancy definitely had a neg- has a negative impact on people's financial well-being. Because it is very, very difficult to find a job when you're pregnant, to keep a job when you're pregnant, and to find or maintain a job with a baby, especially if your partner is explicit deleted. No. What? Fuck up? I wonder, yeah, I wonder what she said. I, I'm going to go with fuck up. As, especially if your partner a is... A shithead. <laughs> I like that. A motherfucker. <laughs> especially if your partner is a shithead and doesn't want to help. So I think that on that end, the instances of domestic violence skyrockets because you're financially dependent on your partner because you have to be home with the kid. According to the Harvard Business Review, the financial consequences are that women will lose. Women lose an average of 18% of their earning power when they leave the job force and 37% of their earning power when they spend three or more years out of the job force. So again, going back to what you were mentioning about Mm -hmm. deciding not to pay the cost of childcare and staying home with the child for five to six years, then you're, you're talking about losing a third to half of your income earning power. Yeah, and you'd be starting over. And what if you had like a really great job that you liked? Now you have to start over. What if you were just starting out in your career? Yeah. You know, like you're starting over because the government said that you have to carry this fetus. Final thoughts, takeaways. What do you got for us? So many. Um, So many. Rage, anger, 
this is the bad place. I've said that already. Um, but like for me, like it all comes down to the loss of uh, bodily autonomy. Yeah. Like I feel like. I don't know if anybody else feels this way, but I feel like I have so little control over my body from periods to hormone fluctuations. Like since puberty, I feel like my body does its own thing and I'm just like there along for the ride. Like, yeah, can I can I do this? Can I can I have control this week? Cool. Thanks. Um, but now it feels like the government has more control than I do. It's like body, government, and then me, like on uh, weekends and summers, like a step parent or something. <laughs> oh, wow. I just I just like got triggered in my <laughs> childhood there. Okay. <laughs> And I get it. Like, we live in New York City, so it's more safe. And like right, I for can, now. For now. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Reagan voted in support of abortion protection in the, before he was president. Like, true. shit can change. Um, but, like, the idea of knowing that if I travel and I find myself in, in a position where, like, something horrible happens, like, plan B might not even be available to me. Yeah. yeah. Or the one that works for when you're over 250 pounds. Because, like, plan, plan B, B doesn't plus? work perfectly. No. <laughs> it's got, like, a, a, a more... A less sexy name. Like, it's like... Of course it does. It's something. Of course it does. <laughs> it's something very sciencey sounding. But whatever. Like, it wouldn't be available to me if I went to some, like, hospital in the Red State and they were just like, well, darling, well, that's just how You were just, just in goes. Louisiana. I mean, not And that. I'm going to Milwaukee. So, like, mm-hmm. hopefully, like, nothing happens. You know, like, I, I wonder how tourism will change with this. Anyway, there's so many takeaways. But, like, it, it scares me that I have to be afraid to like travel. It, it scares me for other women who live in places like this and are losing their choice. Yeah. I think that we need to remain hopeful, right? I guess. I yeah. Know, as, as hopeful as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, if that's marching or donating to abortion funds, especially ones in red states. I think we all just need to, to pitch in because like we cannot go back to how it was. Like there can't be just like wards of women dying of like septic infections. Like yeah. we can't I mean, go back to that. Before Roe v. Wade, there were four states that had fully relinquished their abortion laws. So there are more states that currently have some degree of abortion Mm. rights accessible to people. So that it's better than 1972, but it is is so much worse than it was a month ago. The way that a lot of them are, are linked up is they're like in rows, right? So like if you live in the tip of Texas, you would have to go so far. You should go to Mexico. I guess, yeah. But you know what? But you're right. You're right. No, if you, you're absolutely right because it's not just easy peasy to go across Mm -hmm. the border and get medical care either. Well, like I said, we need to be donating, especially in red states, but we all need to pitch in because like we can't go back. And when it comes down to it, like I'm 100% pro-choice, pro-women, pro-babies living in environments that they're wanted. Yeah. You know? I feel like abortion care is for everyone in any, any, any and every circumstance. Rape, spring break. It is your choice to do what you want with your body. Yep. For me, I'd go as far as to say I'm not only pro-choice, but also pro-abortion. Like, that means for me, like, I'm in favor of the availability of medically induced abortion as a means of ending a pregnancy, no matter the reason. Oh, absolutely. Like, does that include pro-choice? Absolutely. I'm not talking I'm pro-abortion for everyone. There should be no more children created in this world, right? I'm not, like, forced abortion. No, exactly. And that's, I think that's the 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 leap that's that's made so many times. That doesn't make sense. I know it doesn't make sense, but it happens, right? I, it's just, for me, I'm pro the availability of abortion to anyone and everyone. Mm. So, like, I guess pro-abortion about the availability and access and pro-choice about who gets to decide if an abortion is right for them. Mm. So, I'm both. Well, we have covered 
a lot of stuff here. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have a handful of resources and references that we're going to recommend that you check out. But, um, you know, if you have any questions about any other sources that we may have referenced that we don't include links for, just reach out to us and let us know. So the first thing we'll recommend is called Reversing Roe, and that's a 2018 documentary on the history of the decision of Roe v. Wade. It's available currently on Netflix, and unfortunately it's like, it's not current enough for our present situation, but it does provide a valuable history, and I think it's worth checking out for that sort of background information. There's another documentary called The James. Um, it came out in 2022, directed by Tia Lesman. So you'll be able to see that on HBO Max. There's also a podcast called The Fall of Roe, hosted by Christine Charbonneau, the former CEO of Planned Parenthood. She is great. There's about like 10 episodes on there. I mean, she talks about like different states and how things will change. It is great in the way that it is horrible. Yeah, but it's extremely important and informative. Mm-hmm. And speaking of podcasts, Boom Lawyered is another great one that has discussed the recent decisions related to Dobbs and Roe and is hosted by two lawyers, uh, Jessica Mason Piclo and Amani Gandhi. And um, they're both very active on Twitter. One is Hegemami, which I love, and the other is Angry Black Lady. Nice. Uh, the Turnaway Study, 10 Years and a Thousand Women, and the Consequences of Having or Being Denied an Abortion by Diana Green Foster. What the Data Says About Abortion in the U.S. by Jeff Diamond and Bashir Mohammed for the Pew Research Center. The Back Alley Abortion and Dirty Dancing Hits Different Right Now by Mia Brett. Facts Are Important, Abortion is Healthcare by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. The 1960s provided a path for securing legal abortions in 2022 by Felicia Kornblum for the Washington Post. So again, those are just a handful of sources, but uh, we encourage you to, to seek out more. Looking to places like Planned Parenthood, um, Kellen Lord in New York is a great queer uh, resource that would also have some information that would um, help those and the trans and non-binary communities who are also seeking abortions to reach out as well. So thank you for joining us this week. What did you think? Share your thoughts with us. Do you have any suggestions for other big topics we need to cover? Follow the podcast on Twitter at Big Rep Pod and Instagram and TikTok at Big Reputations Pod. Send us a message or email us at BigReputationsPod at gmail.com. We'd love to include your thoughts in a future episode. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave a five-star review. And snag yourself some merch. Our wonderful logo designer, Samantha Momorlejo, has the logo available on her Redbubble account, where you can purchase a variety of items from stickers to t-shirts to mugs and more. Check out the link in the show notes. All right. Well, this was a long episode for everyone, but um, I think it was an important one. And there was a lot that we covered. There was a lot that we didn't get to cover, but that's why we give you these other resources to check out. Mm -hmm. Let's wrap up this episode this week. Kim, do you have a quote for us? I do. It's, if men got pregnant, you could get an abortion at an ATM. And that's from Veep, said by Julia Louis-Dreyfus. I mean... I don't think she's wrong. I don't think she's wrong either. An ATM might be suspicious, but there would be a curtain that would pop down. I'm so sure. It'd be fine. And as always, believe women. Believe women.